It's great to see everyone. Sorry about last week. It was what it was. Um, <laughs> if any of you were wondering, um, we didn't meet last week. So, uh, But anyway, hope you're ready for this year. You know, I, I, I think in my younger days, I would uh, try to bring like some hype like to my own mind about starting a new year and maybe that might spill over uh, like on a day like today. I'm, I'm just not in the hype place. I think this is what getting older does to you. Um, <laughs> you know, it's another year. Uh, it's another year of, of grit and, 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 and grind and the finish line even looks better and better, uh, you know, as you get a little bit older. Um, but yet, Time matters, and, and God has gifted us with, with time, and to, to have markers, and to be able to mark time, uh, and to be able to make sense of time. And I think that's what one of the things we wanted to do with this, this series, this Christmas series that I'm going to finish up today, um, is to provide a framework. You know, a, a picture needs a frame, and same thing with our lives. Our, our lives need to be framed, um, framed so that we can be able to make sense of the moments and the days and the seasons of life, uh, the seasons of difficulty, uh, the suffering, all of that. And uh, the scriptures, this, this story that God has given us uh, gives us just the m- most amazing framework to make sense of everything. So we started at the beginning, um, and today we're going to go to the end of the story. But we began with this question. Uh, The question that we began this series with was, uh, what's wrong with us? Uh, Why why is humanity such a mess these days? Why all the conflict? Why the violence? Why all the hurt, the abuse? Even existentially speaking, uh, why the angst, the worry, the restlessness, the discontentment, the dissatisfaction? Even with some, the hopelessness. Uh, why, why do we have this ache, this, this inner ache uh, that we all feel? And we started off by uh, looking at what J.R. Tolkien says. He, he sums up this pretty well. He says, we all long for Eden, and we are constantly looking for it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its kindest and its most human, is still soaked with this sense of exile. And, and J.R. Tolkien, I think, really sums up the human condition there. Um, basically, what he's saying is that we're exiled from home. We're homeless. And, and, and we live for this longing for home, this longing for Eden, uh, which is really the home that we are made for. And so I think, really, as we sit here today, I don't think we can even begin to imagine what we lost what the world lost when we lost home. You know, I think most of, us, most of us have just enough health, just enough wealth. We have enough friends. We have enough diversion. We have enough entertainment. We have enough pleasure, enough satisfaction uh, to not fully realize uh, that our existence outside of Eden is but a hollow shell of what God intended. We are so far, so far from what God created. And again, if, if you remember that first week, what, what made Eden, Eden? Eden means this all-satisfying, uh, this deep rest, pleasure. Uh, it, it, it's a word, word that has that rich meaning 
uh, what made Eden Eden, uh, it was God's home. In fact, those, those two features of Eden that just jump out at us uh, from Genesis 2 that speak of God's presence, his life-giving presence, uh, the, the first feature of that garden is the river of life. Uh, that's that river that flowed into the garden and then flowed out of the garden, uh, breaking into four rivers that watered all of God's creation. And again, that's more than water. That's more than a river. Um, it's living water. In Hebrew, it's maim kaim. And maim kaim is, is a metaphor, uh, not even just for God, but for God's raw presence. And so that river is this imagery of God who flows in this garden and then out of this garden, uh, filling the whole earth. And, and when you also read other texts that talk about Maim Kaim and talk about this river that flows out of God, this living water. Um, whatever this water touches, it, it comes to life. Whoever drinks this water uh, is, is filled with life. The second feature of, of, of the Garden of Eden is the tree of life. And really, this is creation's power source. Uh, it's what creation must be plugged into for the light and the life of God to be ignited into all creation. Uh, without the tree of light, the, the world goes dark and descends back into chaos. And this is the tragedy then of Genesis 3. This is the tragedy of sin. Sin, sin caused us to lose Eden. Uh, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. That word in Hebrew for banished is, is the word for divorce because a great divorce took place, a great divide, a great chasm. Heaven became divorced from earth. God's space became divorced from our space. Adam and Eve were, were separated from the, from the garden and humanity was forever cut off from God. We lost home. We lost the tree. We lost the living water. We lost God. We lost his presence. We lost his face. We lost his shalom. But see, the Bible is, is first and foremost a story, and it's not just a story of the home that we lost, but it's, it's the story of what God is, is going to do about that, how he's going to restore us to this home. And so let's talk about what this home is going to be. This is our hope. Revelation 21. Let's turn there. I'm going to read from Revelation 21. I'm going to read from Revelation 22. Hey, with a sense of excitement, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is John's vision that Christ gave to him. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. And this verse is so... So incredible. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then uh, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. There it is. The river of Maim Kaim, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood, and here it is, the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And this is just an amazing thing to think about. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word for now. You can be seated. So if you ever, like, in your mind, uh, ask, like, like, where is it all going? And, and how is... How's it all going to end? <laughs> and I'm still surprised at how many Christians uh, today think heaven is, is the end. And then you, you, you ask them, well, what is heaven? And they can't really explain it because it's, it's too abstract to them. And I feel like this is a little bit of an indictment on the church because we've taken the greatest message in the whole world and we've reduced it to going to heaven, something that we can't even picture, let alone explain. But if you want to know what God's ultimate plan for the world, where it's all going, his plan for us, it's what we just read. And it's summed up with, with, with this first verse. A new heavens and a new earth, new creation, or verse 5, when, when, when Jesus declares, behold, I am making everything new, that's just a lot to imagine, everything, everything, everything made new. Now, the Greek language has two words for new, and, and of course, this text was originally written in the Greek language. Uh, it's a very detailed, specific language. Uh, it has the word neos, which means new in terms of time, which, which it pretty much means young. Uh, it also has the word kainos, which means new in terms of quality. Uh, and so uh, oftentimes it means to be renewed or to be restored or to be repaired. In fact, that is the word uh, that is used here uh, for new heavens and new earth. It's... It's a renewed heavens, it's a renewed earth. It's the same with in Isaiah 65, verse 17, from which John is also drawing upon when God pretty much says the same thing. He says, behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. 
uh, that new there has the same meaning. It's, it's this idea of renewing and restoring and repairing, which is why if you uh, would ask a Jewish person what their mission is in this world, um, I'm pretty confident most of them would say it's tikkun olam. Tikkun means to partner. Um, I'm sorry, tikkun means to repair, and olam means the whole. And, and, and so their, their idea of mission is, is to be in partnership with God to repair the whole, the whole thing, the whole world. The other thing I just think we need to see is that, that the new Jerusalem comes down. Look at verse 2. I mean, we're, we're not going up to heaven. We're not escaping this world for heaven. Uh, God's final goal uh, his final purpose is that heaven's going to come down. It's going to come to this world, to a world that's been renewed. And, and heaven is going to come in the form of a city that is described as a holy city, the new Jerusalem. And here's what this means. <laughs> it means something pretty incredible. It means the great divorce is over. And that's why the imagery in our text is that of a grand wedding, because heaven again... Heaven and earth, again, are one. They're consummated. The, the, the chasm, the great divide is no more. In fact, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is, is the return to, to the garden. And that's why uh, it's depicted uh, in the same way the garden in Genesis 2 is depicted. There's a tree of life, and there's this river of, of Maim Kaim that's flowing out of it. And this time, instead of it being a garden... This time it's going to be a city, a stunningly beautiful city. And don't just think bricks and mortar as to what's coming down, but think a people, a stunningly beautiful people dressed like a bride without blemish, stain, or defect. Perfect, healed, made whole. And this is the home which was lost. And whether you know it or not, this is the home your heart longs for. Now, it's almost impossible for me to describe the reality of this new Jerusalem, but I think the text gives us uh, four things that we could look at. Uh, the first detail um, that I want to point out is verse 1. And it says there's not going to be a sea, <laughs> um, no longer any sea. So, you know, I mean, I grew up, and I had a pond in my backyard, and I, uh, I stocked that pond with fish. Like, I love ponds. I love lakes. I love water sports. I love the ocean. So when I read this, and, and I new heavens and new earth, and there's no longer going to be any sea, here's what this means. Biblically speaking, the sea is a metaphor for the abyss, the tahom, the chaos. The sea is the home in, a, in the biblical framework uh, to, to Satan and to the beast, the dragon, the demonic, the, the demonic. That's where they all reside. So when Jesus uh, walks on the sea or when he stills the sea... These aren't just more magic tricks that he's showing the world. 
This is his rightful place in the world. Everything is under his authority. Everything is under his feet, including the sea, including Satan, including the whole world of of those forces. And so absence of a sea in new heavens, new earth simply means no more Satan, no more beast, no more demonic. No more abyss. And I love that amen. Because we, right now, live in a world at war. And I don't think even right now that we have a clue as to how much hell Satan is unleashing right now, even in this room, in our community, upon our lives, our kids, our schools, Our marriages, the Bible says Satan roams around like an angry lion seeking to devour. One day, we will live on an earth, no sea, no Satan, no battle. Second feature, no longer will there be a curse? Look at Revelation 22, verse 3. Now, what's the curse? Okay, I'm getting older, so uh, I can talk about this. Um, what old age uh, and disease does to a body, uh, the curse is done to God's creation. And the curse uh, entered Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. At that moment, a world where everything existed in this perfect harmony, we talked about this, um, think about it. Adam and Eve were, were in, in this wonderful harmony with each other. They were in this incredible harmony with all creation. Creation itself was in harmony with itself. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, were in harmony with their own self. They were at peace. They were in harmony with each other. And this all was rooted out of the fact that they were at peace with God. They were in perfect harmony with God. When center entered the world, that was all gone. And all God could say is where? What happened? And all Adam and Eve could do is hide, hide from God, because at that moment, all innocence was lost. In my opinion, at that moment, creation aged. Every last inch of God's good creation was infected with this disease resulting in chaos, decay, and death. And I would say living on this side of Eden, it is impossible for us to imagine life without the curse because it's all we have known. We are born in sin. We are all aging, decaying, dying. We are all infected with the curse. And we're going to live in a world that's free of this awful curse. I think it's best summed up by uh, what is said in verse 4 of Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. How can we even imagine such a world? A world with no more pain, a world with no more crying. 
a world with no more death. And this is, this is where we just, you know, the picture is so beautiful. It, it, it's, it's, it almost feels like a fairy tale. Uh, but, but this is why it's more than a fairy tale. It, it, it's true because all we have to do is, is, is look at Christ. And, and, and we see how in Christ he came and he launched new creation. He, he came bringing heaven to earth. And, and then when you even look. Uh, not only did the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead were raised. And these are all just windows in, in, into a world uh, that is to come. And, but then you look at, at how he, he unleashed new creation. And you look at the cross. And I think about uh, those disciples. I mean, what must have, ha- have appeared to, to those disciples as the worst, darkest, most hellish moment ever was turned into a resurrection. And with the resurrection, the tables were completely turned. I mean, the most ugly reality now all of a sudden became the most beautiful, and the darkest became the brightest, and the lowest became the highest, and the most devastating defeat was turned into the ultimate victory. And it's going to be the same way with, with, with all of our crosses, with all of our hurts, with all of our sufferings. See, it's not like God is just going to snap his fingers and, and, and just make it all as if it never happened. No, all of our crosses, all of our hurts, our pains are going to be taken up in the hope of the resurrection and into new creation. In fact, one of the things I love to think about is Jesus' resurrected body. Because that's our hope. One day, we won't just be resuscitated. Like Jesus, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be new creations. John tells us when we behold him, we will become like him. Healed. Made new. Glorious. Philippians 3, 21 Paul says, you know, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be just like his glorious body. And then I even love to think about Jesus' resurrected body, uh, that, that it still bears the scars of his suffering because even those scars are, are, are part of his glory. And, and so it will be with our scars and our wounds. It's all going to be part of our future glory. Because God is, 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 is using all of this to make us into something greater than if it had never happened. Even our failures even our mistakes, even our sins, even the way that we've hurt and scarred other people. And I think most of us are already getting a taste of this right now, how we can look at our suffering and our wounds and our weaknesses and even our failures and our mistakes, that when we bring these things to Jesus and we trust him, they don't make us less, they make us more. 
It's working for us, not against us. But one day, oh, we have the hope of be, being just like Jesus. And see, this is why, why, why the, the early Christians, why they could face lions and, and why they could endure persecution with, with such joy, with, with songs on their lips, because this was their hope. They had the hope of, of new creation. I mean, look at verse 4 of chapter 21 when it says that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Like, <laughs> I don't even know what that fully means, but it, it, it's incredible. And I, I think he's drawing from, from Psalm 56, verse 8. Psalm 56, verse 8, uh, David says that God, God collects all of our tears in his bottle. Think about that. Every tear that you have cried, God has collected it. And this comes right out of the culture. Um, in the ancient world, at funerals, a, a tear bottle would be passed around, and, and, and people would cry their tears, and it would be given to the mourner. But now, he's personally going to wipe away our tears. And let me tell you something. This is not just sympathy. This is empathy. He is a fellow suffering who knows our suffering. Third feature. 21 verse 3. Look at that verse. It's so beautiful. I really want your eyes to just read it. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Be with them and be their God. <laughs> and God, think about it. He's, he's going to be right downtown on Main Street of this city. And when you know the whole story uh, uh, of the Bible, you know that this is always God's heart. I mean, it starts in Eden where, where, where God every day walked with Adam and Eve uh, in the cool of the day. Uh, then later in the biblical story, uh, we see a God who pitches his tent, who tabernacles with his people. And then later in the story, God literally makes his home in the neighborhood. And then later in the story, a God who comes and takes on flesh itself and walks among us. And then even later in the story, a God who makes his home in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. I mean, this is our God. This is so his heart. He, he made us so he could be with us. And I love some of the other imagery, too, that's, that's in the text that we didn't read. But, but in this New Jerusalem, this holy city, uh, verse 22 of chapter 21 says there's, there's not going to be a temple. Well, God always lives in a temple. So why is there not going to be a temple? Well, if you look at verse 16, uh, it talks about the city itself being a perfect cube. Now, the only other time in Scripture where a perfect cube is described is two places. One, it describes the Holy of Holies in the temple, and the other place, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies is God's living room. And what this is saying is there isn't going to be a temple because the whole city is going to be a temple. 
a whole, the whole city is going to be a holy of holies. And this fulfills Isaiah and Habakkuk's prophecy. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And finally, what I think is the most spectacular feature of this city. I mean, everything I just said, I think, almost pales in comparison, even though it's so great, to what I'm going to mention now. In Revelation 22, verse 4, it says, And they will see his face. I mean, I don't even know how to talk about I, I think the best way to, to, to describe it or to just get into a fraction of, of, of what, how incredible this will be is just think of someone that you love who's, who, who's no longer with you, who's passed. And I know pictures suffice, and it's fun to look at pictures, but there's still, there's still that longing to see their face. And... and, and this is the longing that we, we have for, for God. God made us to know him, to know his face, to see it. So honestly, whatever that thing is in this world that brings you the most joy and satisfaction and pleasure is but a fraction of what it will be when we see his face. And what will that moment be like for God? Well, Revelation 21 verse 2 says that we're going to be prepared as a bride. And uh, even that, I, I, I think about that in light of Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, after they sinned. And the wreckage that they brought upon their lives and the world of them hiding in the bushes because they were so consumed with shame and guilt. Or I think about uh, the earthly Jerusalem and not just the earthly Jerusalem today, which is really a city of chaos, um, not a city of shalom as, as it should be. Uh, but, but even in the story, I mean, in Lamentations, uh, the, the earthly Jerusalem is, is personified, and she's called Daughter Zion. And, and it's there where, where Jerusalem is described as this widow who's in agony, um, described as, as a victim of rape, someone who's uh, been defiled and filled with shame. And now Jerusalem, the great city of God is healed, made whole. She's described as this glorious, beautiful bride dressed in all her array. And who's the husband? Well, look at verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you I'll show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in spirit to a high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God in all its brilliance. It was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
the bride is the wife of the lamb. And, and, and she's so stunning. Um, I mean, she's been restored, redeemed, healed, made new, uh, shining with the brilliance of the glory of God. And, and this just brings to mind one of my favorite things when I do a wedding, um, because I was once a groom, but it's now fun to stand next to the groom, especially when the doors are open. He sees the bride sometimes for the first time that day in all her glory and her beauty. And sometimes it's not even just what I see, because I'll look at him, because everybody's looking at the bride. Uh, it's what I hear. Sometimes gasps and groans uh, are coming out, of, and I get it. And we're going to be the city that's coming down the aisle. And, and, and who's the husband? Christ. And when he sees us, He's going to be ravished with us. We're going to be stunning and glorious. And this is where you have to ask the question, like, how is it that he could love us so much? How is it that we could be so beautiful to him that he would even desire us? And it's all because of the one who prepared us. It's the one who makes us beautiful. And see, this is why Jesus, every time in, in, in Revelation, in this text, he's, he's not called Jesus, he's not called Christ, he's not called King, he's not called Lord. Every time he's called the Lamb. Because the Lamb reminds us as to why we're beautiful. We've been washed, we've been cleansed, we've been prepared, we've been made beautiful, glorified, without stain, blemish, or defect. And I just think about that, that, that tree of life now in this, in this new heavens and new earth, which is right next to the river. And if you ask yourself, like, what is that tree or what does that tree look like? Because we know what it's going to be. It's going to be for the healing of the nations. The tree is the healing. It heals the world. And uh, again, Greek is a very specific language, and it has two words for tree. It has the word dendron. It has the word Zulon, and every time in our New Testament where you see tree, sycamore tree, olive tree, um, the Greek word that's always uh, behind it is, is dendron. But there's one place where the Greek translates the Old Testament and it uses the word zulon, and it's when it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Because the word zulon doesn't so much mean tree, it means wood. And it's not the word dendron that's used in Revelation 21 and 22 to describe the tree of life. It's zulon. The tree of life is the cross. It provides the healing. Now, what does all this mean? It means that with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, new creation has begun it means that, that that living water that, that flowed in and out of Eden that will one day flow through the great city and out of the uh, great city to water the earth. I mean, 2,000 years ago, Jesus showed up and said, I am Maim Kaim. He is that river. 
And he says, anyone who drinks of this river will have life, life to the full. Do you know that river? Are you drinking from that river? I think one of the most depressing texts in the Bible is, is when God says to his people Israel, he says, my people, my people have committed two sins. First, they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can only hold dead water. But more importantly, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. Could God say that about you today? How are you quenching your thirst? I don't think there's anything more depressing or despairing than, than, than digging for satisfaction in a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a career or, or I'll say it, the next football game. I mean, how, how, how despairing is it to, to dig deeper and to dig harder, uh, faster in, in, into money or friends, accomplishments, power, fame, pleasures, the latest toy, popularity, vacation, your appearance, your images, only to come up empty again and again and again. Listen, this morning, if your life lacks joy, if it lacks peace, kindness, goodness, contentedness. If you're a person that is critical, negative, complaining, if you find yourself to be jealous, envious, bitter, angry, disappointed, you're drinking the wrong water. God made us for himself. We were made to know him. We were made to walk with him. We were made to drink of him with every breath we take. Our Souls long, long for God. And you know who gets this water? Look at Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. It's not the proud. It's not the self-sufficient. It's not the self-righteous. It's not even those who go to church or live good lives. This water is for the thirsty. It's for those who know their need. It's for the desperate. Because with God, all we can really give to him is need and thirst and hunger. Let me tell you what all this means for us. It means that we are not here to wait around for heaven. Because we get to be part of God's kingdom right now of bringing heaven to earth. God wants to send his Maim Kain, his living water, right now to the world through us. Right now, we are the new Jerusalem. 
Right now, we are God's bride. Right now, we are God's partner. And our mission is to be this river that we would be flowing in dry, barren places. Which means, yes, we're about saving souls. But it also means we're about restoring neighborhoods and and redeeming cities and and reconciling races. It's to kun olam. It's to partner with God to repair the whole, the whole that he loves. It's to be his presence, to be his face. It's to move in. It's to do what God does, to wipe away tears. And all you have to do today is just look at our world. There's so much hurt, brokenness. There's so many tears. Are we close enough to broken people to see the tears? Are we the face of God uh, in our little corner of the world? Do, do, do broken, thirsty people come panting to us? Do hurting people come running to us? God wants to partner with us to bring new creation to the world he loves. And today is a new year, January 1, 2023. Some of us make resolutions on this day. I would make a strong suggestion that this would be a year where you commit yourself to every single day acknowledging how thirsty you are, how desperate you are, and let it drive you to the living water so you forsake all the broken cisterns that hold no water. That you resolve to move towards broken, hurting people. That you set your life up with grit to partner with God. To bring tikkun olam, new creation, to the world. God, make us thirsty. Make us thirsty for you. As a deer pants for streams of living water, so my soul, Lord, pants for you. Oh God, you are my God. Passionately I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary place where there is no water. God, show us our thirst. Make us thirsty.